Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I'm a nice guy. (laughs) So Colossians 3, this is the second uh, half of Colossians. We looked at the first half. And Paul here, in the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, is telling us to put off our old nature and to put on our new nature as as new creatures in Christ, as new creations in Christ. We have, you know, now our spirits are alive and now we can put on, we have the ability through the Holy Spirit to put on a new nature. And so we're encouraged to put off the old nature, the old sins, the old, the works of the flesh and put on uh, the work of the Spirit. And uh, we finished with Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 last week, where Paul says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Basically what he's saying is do, any, do everything or say everything under the authority of Jesus and in the character of Jesus. When you say in Jesus' name, that's really what you're saying. Under the authority of Jesus and in the character of Jesus. And and so Paul now is going to get into some real nitty-gritty application of this principle, of this verse here. And the application that he starts with starts in the home. And uh, Paul starts at the very core of, of the home, the very core foundation of a home, and that's the marriage. And uh, marriage, of course, is the most basic unit. Uh, It's really the foundation of society. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, is it any wonder why Satan is out to destroy marriages today? Because if he can destroy marriage, he's destroyed the foundation of of our culture, of our society. And so there are forces at work to destroy marriages today to destroy even our marriages if it's any if it's possible and so paul here the application begins in the home you know it's it's really easy to uh, you know take these principles and and come to church and go okay i'm going to be you know i'm going to put on these principles i'm going to put on this new nature at church and everything and that's great and we should but where the rubber really meets the road is when we're at home you know, when the guard's down, when you're with people that are com- you're comfortable with, and you kind of, you know, you don't feel like you have to put up any pretenses, you're home, you know, with your family. And that's where the application really starts, is in the home. And so Paul here, in verse 18, he begins with the wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husband as is fitting in the Lord. That word submit means to obey or to be subject to. It's actually a a military term, a Greek military term, meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Now, I don't know if your marriage, your home is military in nature, where, you know, the the husband's the uh, drill sergeant or not. I I have no idea. But um, it also has a non-military use or non-military definition. And it means a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, and of carrying a burden. It's a voluntary thing. And so Paul here, notice that he says for the wives to submit to your own husband. He doesn't say submit to men in general, but within the marriage to your husband in, spe- in specifically. And he says, as is fitting in the Lord. It fits. 
it fits with reality. It fits with, with God's will for marriages and for the home. Um, another translation says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Those who belong to the Lord, it's fitting to be submitted. And you and I, Christians, we belong to the Lord. It is fitting for us. Christians are to be submitted people, period. There are a lot of applications. There are a lot of ways that we as Christians are to be submitted. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, tells us to be submitted to governing authorities. He doesn't qualify whether they're good or bad, whether they're Democrat or Republic or Independent, you know, whether they're doing the right thing or doing He just says, be submitted to them. We're to pray for our leaders and for those in authority. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells us to be uh, submitted to those who have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. To the, to the leaders in the church, to those who are, who are just who are sacrificing and doing things for the fellowship, you're to be in submission to them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells us to be uh, submitted to elders, not elders of the church, but elders in age, to those who are older than us. He also says that we're in 1 Peter 5 to be submitted to one another within the church body. And he goes on and he says, and be clothed with humility. That's another thing that we're to put on, the the garment of humility, and to be submitted to one another. James, in in his letter, says that we're to be submitted to God. I mean, ultimately, we're to be submitted to God. So as believers, we're to be submitted individuals, period. Paul expounds on the husband-wife roles more in his letter to the Ephesians. Colossians, he kind of just says a few things. In Ephesians, he really kind of opens it up more. And uh, for wives, he gives the example of Jesus and his church. Now, when you think about it, these letters that were written were written in the first century, and the church was in its infancy at that point. It was just beginning. The church had just started not too many years before, and Christians are just now learning what it means to be the church. And so Paul is saying uh, in the Ephesian letter to the Ephesians, he says, Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. There's a new phenomena that was occurring also at that time. There were people who were getting saved and wives were getting saved and not maybe not necessarily their husbands. And so you'd have a household where there'd be a believing wife and an unbelieving husband or vice versa, you know, the other way around. And uh, so individual spouses were getting saved while still married to unbelievers. And this was a new phenomena that was occurring in the church. And so Paul uh, addresses that. Uh, excuse me, Peter addresses it in his epistle, in first epistle, excuse me, first epistle, first Peter chapter three. He says, Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Fear doesn't mean frightened fear, it means reverence and respect. Continues and he says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. In that last verse there, I think Paul is making it clear that he's, or excuse me, Peter is making it clear that he is not suggesting that a wife be submitted to an abusive husband that's striking terror into her. Okay? There, there, you know, it's, there's, there's, a, there's, you know, common sense there. Um, but here Peter is encouraging wives who are married to unsaved husbands to win them over with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle spirit. That word, it just basically means gentleness or meekness. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. And it stems from basically trusting in God's goodness and His control over the situation. That's a gentle spirit. A quiet spirit is an undisturbed and an undisturbing spirit. Peaceful and tranquil. Now, for a godly wife to be submitted to the headship of her husband in the marriage, it has absolutely nothing to do with her lack of ability to lead. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have the ability to lead. Um, it doesn't mean that there's a, there's a lack of, of uh, you know, uh, competence or anything like that. It has everything to do with God's design for marriage and for having order and peace in the home. It's, just, it's God's plan. So... Verse 19, now Paul switches and he speaks to the husbands in the marriage. And in verse 19 he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Again, going back to Paul's letter in the Ephesians, uh, he uses an example and he uses lots of word pictures. And guys, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I need word pictures. And so very frequently, you know, my wife will say something to me and, and I'm just, I'll have that kind of like deer in the headlights, like, what? you know, and she'll say, well, let me give you, let me give you a word picture. And then she'll give me an example. I'm like, oh, the light bulb goes off and I get it. And Paul apparently knew that that was guys needed that. So he gives a lot of word pictures for guys. And so for loving your wives, guys, Paul says, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Gave himself. That means to deliver oneself, to surrender up to death, to give over into one's power or use. Think about Jesus. Jesus gave himself over for the church. What did he do? He surrendered his will to the Father and laid down his life for you and I, for the church. He freely surrendered himself into the hands of his enemies at the Garden of Gethsemane. He basically set himself, his own desires, his own self-interests aside for the sake of you and I when he died on the cross. And so Paul here is painting a picture for husbands, and it's one of setting aside your selfish wants and desires. In fact, dying to yourself for the sake of your wife. Paul, in his letter also to the Ephesians, uses another word picture for the husband. Okay, It's like, okay, if you didn't get it through that, let's give you another picture. And it's, he says we're to love our wives the way we are to love our own bodies, or the way we do love our own physical bodies. And he says, for he who loves, him, loves his wife loves himself. You know, it boils down to this. If you want a peaceful and a happy home, then love your wife. 
If you want a good marriage, love your wife. You want your wife to respect you more, love her more. You know, what happens too often is a wife ends up feeling unloved by her husband, and she loses respect for him. And then she starts expressing that disrespect for his leadership. And of course, he picks up on her lack of respect for his leadership, and he starts continuing acting and saying things in an unloving manner, and it just snowballs. It gets worse and worse and worse, and it's a cycle that just continues, and it sustains itself. And then sometimes I hear from people, you know, as soon as that other person changes, as soon as they change, then I'll change. As soon as they stop doing what they're doing, then I'll stop doing what I'm doing. And the problem is, chances are you're never going to see that change. You have to be the one to break the cycle. Um, we had that uh, video series, Love and Respect, and Dr. Egger, Eggert, you know who I'm talking about anyways. Hopefully you know who I'm talking about. Emerson Eggert. I have a hard time with his name. But anyways, the Love and Respect series. You know, he says this. He says, let the spouse who is the most mature be the first one to change. Be the first one to break that cycle. And see, the thing is, if you do that, eventually your spouse is going to respond. Now, it may not happen overnight. And the reason why is because that cycle didn't just start up overnight. It was, there's probably years of hurts, years of layers of wounds. And so it's going to take time. It's going to take faith. It's going to take persistence. And most importantly, it's going to take prayer because nothing will be accomplished without prayer. Paul tells the husbands in Ephesians, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. To nourish, it means to bring up to maturity, to provide an environment in the marriage that provides growth. To cherish, to keep warm, to cherish with tender care. You know, we we cherish our, our treasured possessions. And guys, we're to treasure our cherished possession of our wives. We're to cherish them that same way. Peter goes even in another direction, or not another direction, but he kind of adds to it in his epistle. And he says, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to them. And that means to have the highest degree of esteem and dignity for your wives. Now, in that day and age, this was revolutionary for the church, for the people in the Roman Empire, because women in that day and that age were treated like second-class citizens in the Roman Empire for sure, but even in many Jewish homes, the women were treated like second-class citizens. And so this was a revolutionary teaching about marriage. Going back in verse 19 of Colossians 3, Paul continues, says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. That means don't be harsh towards them. Don't be hard. Don't be coarse, sarcastic, unkind, angry in your words, in your actions, or even in your tone. I'll be the first to admit, I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of being sarcastic or being harsh. And uh, it's pretty interesting. Sometimes, you know, you will, guys will say something harsh or will respond sarcastically. And then all of a sudden we wonder why our wives are kind of distant. You know, or, or, they're, or all of a sudden it's like, now you're angry. Why are you angry? Well, it's because the way we responded to them. We don't understand that our wives are responsive to our love or our lack of love. And I really do believe that our wives are the barometer of our marriage. 
And so for you and I, husbands, it's our job to make our wife feel loved. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I do all these things. I mean, I work, you know, I provide. I, 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 I do all these things around the house. I do all this stuff. And we have all this, this ideas of what, you know, she should know that I love her because I do all this stuff for her. The thing is, <clears throat> your wife needs to feel loved. Does she feel loved? You say, well, I, I do all this she needs. She does, she's not supposed to have feelings about it. She's just supposed to know that I love her. No, that, yeah, that sounds great. But the reality is, does she feel loved? Does she feel loved? Likewise, wives, it's your job to make your husband feel respected. You say, well, you know, he should just know that I respect him. No, does he feel like it? And I go, you say, well, why do we have to go on feelings? Well, that's the reality in marriage. You need to feel like your, lo- your wife needs to feel like she's loved. And guys, husbands, we need to feel like we're respected. So Paul continues here. He's moving past husbands and wives. Whew, got through that. And uh, <laughs> getting to children. It's everybody's turn here, right? Children, verse 20. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Obey them in all things. In submitting and obeying human authority for the Christian, there is a higher authority, and that's God. Uh, You know, if obedience is in direct violation of God's laws, of course, then, you know, God is a higher authority, and we're to obey God above what anyone tells you to do. But the command for children to obey their parents, man, it's it's actually one of the Ten Commandments, and it's the only commandment with a blessing attached. In Exodus twenty twelve, it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So the parents don't execute you. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. God has a lot to say about children despising and cursing their parents. It's mentioned in the blessings and the cursings of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. It says, Cursed is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Contempt, it means to treat them and their words as inconsequential and to despise them. Cursed be anyone who despises their parents' words. Proverbs 30, verse 17, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty severe. You know, in the Old Testament, there are instructions for parents to put to death, literally put to death, openly rebellious and disobedient children. And guys, kids, <laughs> there's not too many here, but you think your parents' punishments are too severe these days. You know, instead of them taking you out to the woodshed, they take you out to the rock pile. <laughs> you know, that, that'd be it, you know. But interesting, you know what I just read this week? It was in the news. It says a state appeals court on Tuesday tossed out child abuse findings against a frustrated Northern California mother who spanked her 12-year-old daughter hard enough with a wooden spoon to cause bruising. So she got frustrated with her 12-year-old daughter. She was spanking her with a wooden spoon, and it produced some bruising. And uh, so the Children Protective Agency, somehow they got involved, and uh, they labeled it as abuse. And believe it or not, an appeals court actually tossed out that abuse or that finding that it was abuse and they said it, it wasn't abuse and in the case of this 12 year old daughter this they had tried everything to get this daughter to to uh, go on the right path and she was starting to get involved with in a gang 
And so they, they didn't know what else to do. And so the mother was so frustrated, she took a wooden spoon and, and spanked her daughter. Probably pretty hard, apparently. But uh, it's not the same as stoning them, though. <laughs> you know, it is important to have obedient children because it produces peace in the home. And you're also preparing them for adulthood. You really are. You're, prefer- you're preparing them for respecting authority as adults. In verse 21, Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now this is addressed to fathers as the head of the home, but you know fathers tend to be more strict, generally speaking, and more harsh than mothers, generally speaking. But this is also addressed to mothers, because both mothers and fathers can affect their children in profound ways. And so he says, don't provoke your children. Don't aggravate them. Exasperate them. Cause them to have a prolonged, ongoing anger or resentment. That verb, it's a present tense verb. It means don't keep on provoking them, aggravating them, and exasperating them. Because to be honest with you, there are going to be times when you discipline your children that they're going to be exasperated. They're going to be provoked. They're going to be angry and stuff. There's, a, there's that period. But what Paul is talking about is like, not, he's not saying don't get your kids, you know, make sure your kids don't get upset. He's not saying that. He's just saying don't prolong it. Don't, don't keep doing that. Don't keep uh, aggravating them and getting them to the point where there's resentment and bitterness in their hearts towards you. It's a big difference. There are times when they're going to be aggravated and they're going to resent your discipline. But Paul here is talking about an ongoing, continual pattern of provoking them. He says, lest they become embittered, discouraged, disheartened, and broken-spirited. That's what that means. How how does a parent do that? I've identified six ways. There's probably more. But one of them is when you punish them as a way to vent your anger. You're You're just ready to explode, and so you explode, and you exact revenge on them basically and that's opposed to disciplining them for the purpose of correcting their behavior one's done in anger one's done and you just you just you just you just like a boiler has just exploded the other is i'm going to discipline them you know for the purpose of correcting them there's a big difference second way you can do you can provoke your children it's inconsistent punishment they never know from one day or the next if you're going to ignore their behavior or if you're going to fly off the handle. And so they're just they're like walking on eggshells around because they never know how you're going to respect, how you're going to respond rather than being you know, opposed to. The opposite of that would be consistent discipline. You know, this is always wrong. I'm always going to address it when you do that consistently so that they know what to expect. Terrible thing if they don't know what to expect, you know. Third way, continually putting them down, insulting them, badgering them, calling them names, continually pointing out their faults and telling them they can never do anything right. You're going to break their spirit. Fourth way, ignoring them. You're too busy to notice them. You're never home with them. You guys remember that song, The Cats in the Cradle? You guys, some of you guys remember. I forgot who the, the artist was that sang it, but... The cat's in the cradle, okay? This guy, you know, he, he's so busy for his kid. He never has time. He's busy providing and stuff. And then he grows up, and he's an old man. And then his, he wants his kid to hang out with him. And his kid says, Dad, I've got this to do, and i got that to do. I realize he grew up just like me. Uh, so, okay, so that's one way, okay? You're too busy to, to notice them. You ignore them. You never have time for them. 
And that'll cause a child to be resentful. Another way is overindulging them, trying to keep them happy, never disciplining them, flooding them with opportunities where, you know, it's just, it's like you're, you're just trying to provide so much for your children and it'll cause resentment too. Another way, playing favorites. Now, it doesn't mean all things have to be equitable between all the children all the time. Because if you try to do that as a father or as a mother, you're going to go crazy trying to make everything fair for each one of your children. We're not talking about that. In fact, you're doing them a disservice because life isn't fair. Life isn't equitable. There's going to be times where they're going to get the short end of a stick. And, and you know, they need to understand that. But what I'm talking about is a continual, ongoing, preferring one child over the other. I've seen this in families. And I can tell you, it causes wounds that continue into adulthood. When, a, when, a, when one child feels like they've always been you know, second to, to other children. It's interesting. You, you can talk to adults, and that pain is still there. It's pretty fascinating. You know what's interesting about this letter this was written to the churches, and Paul wanted this letter to be read to the church in, in Colossus and also read to the church in uh, Laodicea. What's interesting about this is that Paul is addressing children, and the letters to be read to the assembly, to the fellowship. And what that implies to me is that children were in this church, they were in the assembly to hear this teaching because it was addressed to children. Children obey your parents. And so, you know, it's here you have this fellowship of people, and it's, it's a family, basically. The mother and the father and the children, they're all here together hearing the Word of God. And, you know, I think in our church, of course, the, the logistics of this church is just that that's kind of the way it is here. Um, but I think it is a mistake to completely separate children in church to the point where everything has to have a youth version. You know, you have children's church, you have adults' church. You have children's worship, you have adults' worship. And, and I know there's some churches that do that, and I don't, I'm not trying to knock them. But I think when you look at, and here anyways, it's biblical that we're here together as families. Now, uh, you know, I understand why some pastors do it. Some pastors do it because, you know, it can be distracting to have little children in here. You know, making noise and stuff. And, and yeah, it's something that it can be distracting. I've seen youth that have been distracting too, you know, teens. So it's not just children it's or young children. It's children in general can be distracting. But, you know, parents can and, of course, should deal with that as appropriate. Um, but I think completely separating kids from parents isn't good. And I think sometimes as a parent you can get this false sense of, well, my children are in the church service and they're going to their thing and they're getting taught the word and they're, you know, they're, they're okay and they may not be okay. Fellowship like ours, you know, you see the kids, you know, you know, you know how they're responding in church and you can, maybe you don't know their hearts during it, but you know, you kind of get a better idea, I think. So I think we have a good thing here, generally speaking also interesting to note because he's going to get to it in this next portion of Colossians 3 that there's slaves and masters in the fellowship together fellowshipping together and this would have been for the first time this is a this again is another revolutionary concept slaves and masters in fellowship together in the church half of the Roman Empire was comprised of slaves 
and the other half were the slave owners. They were the masters. In fact, Onesimus, if you've heard of his name before, the slave, and Philemon, his master, they were both members of this church in Colossus. And if you read the letter of Paul's letter to Philemon, those guys were in church together here. This was a brand new revolutionary concept. That wall of distinction and separation had been torn down by the cross of Christ. And so you had everybody coming together as a fellowship. Of course, thankfully, slavery is not an issue we deal with anymore here in the U.S. I'm, I'm sure there's other places where slavery is still occurring in the world. Um, but there's still application for you and I. Because when you and I contract with our employer, you know, we, we enter into a contract with our employer, uh, they're going to pay us a certain amount of money and we're going to do a certain amount of work for them. And we, we, we come to an agreement with our, with our employer, you know, I'm going to do this work, you're going to pay me this, and it's an agreement. And once you enter into that agreement, during your time that you're doing your job for your employer, um, at least during your hours of employment, and maybe in some cases even outside of your hours of employment, there's a certain level of control they have over you. You can't just do what you want. You're, you've contracted to work with them, and so you're basically, whatever they tell you to do, within reason. I mean, they can't be telling you to do illegal stuff. You have rights as an employee, but generally speaking, you have to do what they tell you to do. I mean, that's just part of the agreement, right? You've, you've signed an agreement saying, I'll, I'll, I'm going to submit this time of my life to you in exchange for you to provide some income for me. And so in that sense... What Paul is talking about with slaves and masters has, certainly has application for you and I. Verse 22, bondservants. He says, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. If you're working according to the flesh, you're going to be pleasing them as eye service. What that means is, as long as they're watching you, then you do your job. As soon as they're not there, or as soon as they turn around, you're, you're off playing whatever, doing whatever, your own thing. That's working according to the flesh. Working according to the Spirit is working with sincerity of heart, fearing God. Knowing that, yeah, my, my, my employer might not be watching me, but God's watching me, and I fear Him. And so I'm going to be a good employee because God, I'm working for God. In fact, verse 23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Another translation says, Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. For you serve the Lord Christ puts a whole different perspective on the workplace. Be faithful and diligent in the job you currently have, too, also. Because God, I think, honors people that work hard. People that are not slothful, I think God honors it. Look at how many men were called in the Bible who were called as they were working. They were working hard. Moses, right? He's out in the wilderness, in in the... Uh, in the desert of Midian, I think it was, and he's tending sheep for his father-in-law. And he's busy doing that, and God calls him to lead a nation. David, he's out working. He's tending sheep, and he ends up being called 
to be a king over Israel. Gideon, one of the judges of Israel, he was threshing wheat. And while he's threshing wheat, an angel appears to him and calls him to deliver their nation or his nation from the Midianites. Peter, James, and John, they were all fishermen. And they were called, when they were fishing, they were called and Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Stephen. Stephen was serving as a deacon in the early church at Jerusalem, and he was called to die for Christ. Wow. I don't know if I want to be called to die for Christ, but you know what? His life and his death was probably influential in the apostle or Saul of Tarsus coming to faith in the Lord. And look at the, the fruit of that ministry. We're here because of the ministry of Saul of Tarsus coming to faith in the Lord. Speaking of Saul of Tarsus, Barnabas and Saul, they were busy ministering as deacons in the church at Antioch, and God called them, the Holy Spirit called them to preach the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, and the church just exploded at this point. And so there's nothing wrong with working. There's nothing wrong with working hard, and I think God honors hard work. And so you might say, man, I'm just in this job, and I, you know, it feels like I'm not doing anything, and it's not really accomplishing anything. But if you're working as unto the Lord, God's pleased with it. Because you're working for Him. And it, you know, it makes it so much easier to put that perspective on. Because you may have a difficult employer. One who's unreasonable. One who you know, just tries to cheat you every chance they get. Or tries to take advantage of you every chance you get. And it can be hard to work in that kind of environment. I, I don't have that kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm been blessed with uh, good employers... Uh, for the most part, in my the whole time that I've ever been working, I had a couple that were kind of interesting. But for the most part, it's I've had really fortunate uh, experiences with jobs, and so I would really not have an excuse for grumbling and complaining. Although people grumble and complain anyways, right? Um, but when you put it on the mindset, you know, I'm serving the Lord, and yeah, this guy's paying me, but man, I'm I'm just I'm working for the Lord, and I think that's the attitude to have. And that's the attitude that God says, you know what, I can use that person. And he might call you into something even bigger. Be faithful in wherever you're at, and God will make you faithful over bigger things. So, verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. It didn't matter if you're slaves or masters. You know, God was impartial, or God is impartial. And beginning in chapter uh, 4, we're going to just jump into chapter 4. The reason why is I think, you know, it's interesting. Chapter and verse was not in the original manuscripts. That was added like a third century or something like that. It was added later on, chapters and verses. And why whoever decided to put Chapter 4, verse 1 into chapter 4 rather than the end of chapter 3 is beyond me. <laughs> I mean, it's like, why? It, does, it, it seems to really fit at the end of chapter 3. And so that's why we're going to do chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, it, you know, and again, we don't have masters and slaves here in our country anyways, but we have employers and employees. And so what he's saying, God is impartial. And so masters or employers, be merciful, be just, treat them with dignity, 
don't withhold pay. There's verses that talk about, you know, don't don't withhold pay from someone if they've contracted to work for you. Don't, you know, try to hold them off as long as you can paying them. Pay them promptly because they've worked hard for that. They're, they're depending on that for their livelihood. Don't be prideful and overbearing because you may be a master on earth or you may be an employer on earth, but you also serve a master in heaven. And so, you know, if you think about this, here's these slave owners, and in the Roman Empire, a slave had no rights. They basically, you know, uh, they didn't have like a court of appeals. They didn't have like an association they could complain to, you know, hey, this, you know, the, the union of slaves, you know, they didn't have any of that in those days. And so they could be treated very, very roughly and probably were treated very, very roughly with no recourse. And now you have this church and you have Christians, you have slave owners and slaves coming to faith in Christ, and they're, they're all together in the fellowship together. Wouldn't that be weird? I mean, sometimes I've thought, wouldn't that be weird if my boss was in church here and I was actually his pastor, but he's my boss? And that probably happens in some situations, but I thought, well, that'd be really kind of awkward. But that would be what would be occurring in the church. You'd have slaves and masters, and, and uh, they had to interact with each other. And so this is a revolutionary concept, and Paul's telling them, hey, you masters, realize you have a master in heaven. And so treat them with dignity. Treat them with fairness. You know, it's interesting. We all fit somewhere in these roles this morning, didn't we? You may be an employer. I don't know how many employers there are here, but we're certainly, very many of us are employees. Uh, I'm sure there's some husbands and wives here. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm a husband, not a wife, but I'm a husband. You know, there's children here. Um, we all fit somewhere in these roles in society and in the family. And so for you and I today, there's application for each one of us. There's probably multiple applications because some of you are fathers and employees or you know whatever, vice versa. Um, and so these are some real practical ways that you and I are called to put off our old nature and to put on our, our new nature. And so, um, you know, like I said in the very beginning, we can all, you know, act outside of the home certain ways but where it really counts is in, in the home and, uh, you know, in families where you're most comfortable with people. You know, it's so easy to put down the guard and to treat people. Uh, you, you almost take advantage of them. You know, you just you take it for granted that they're there and they're going to be there and you treat them a certain way. And Paul says, no, if you're led by the Spirit, you're going to treat them that same way. You're going to put off that old nature, period. You're going to put on the new nature, and it should be as evident outside of the home as it is inside of the home. So, why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this very practical teaching this morning. And, uh, Lord, I know, I know I, need, uh, I need to apply this in my own situation, in my own life, Father, and I think each one of us do. Lord, I thank you that you've given us not just uh, generalities and scriptures of walking in the Spirit or putting on the new nature, but, Lord, you've actually shown us exactly what you're talking about. And, Lord, it's so often, uh, it, it just it drills down to even in our home, Lord God. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us because I know that there's, it's so easy to take our loved ones for granted and to 
to just assume things and to let down our guard because we're home and nobody has to nobody else knows how we're responding or how we're reacting and father i pray that lord we would remember that no matter where we are we're to be walking in the spirit no matter what time of the day or night it is we're to be walking in the spirit and so father i thank you for this very practical application this morning lord i pray that lord you might just take this teaching and just uh Lord, just use it in our lives and that, Lord, as we obey your word and as we respond to your word, Lord, that it might produce fruit in our lives, in our families, in our marriages. And so we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.